A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was like, this is not what I want to spend my life doing. And then that's when, you know, this offer from Al Jazeera came where they were like, well, we want somebody to lead the innovation studio here. Would you do it? And I was, I guess, out of my frustration, I was like, no, I don't want to do this anyway. So I'm going to like put forth a list of demands and see if they'll actually agree with it. And I told them, I was like, I want to hire my own team. I want to have complete control over editorial. You know, I want to be able to, uh, I want to be able to like have a training program that's part of it. Uh, I want to choose the location where I work out of, and they agreed. They agreed to all of it, and so that was sort of that became the genesis of Contrast, wherein our goal was yes to create these immersive experiences, but it was, I think, the DNA of the project is how do we make sure the people who don't have access to the technologies, but whose stories are being told all the time, learn how to use these tech and are able to tell stories using it. How you did? How you did? That was the voice of Zara Rasul, and we were talking about collaborative journalism, how to make sure we have a more inclusive media. And I really love Zara's perspective because not only is she a TCK, a third culture kid, she really comes at it from a perspective of how this is a definite way to change the world, how this is something that informs our policies, informs the way we grow and informs the lifestyle we choose to you know, cultivate and create. And in our podcast interview, you can hear how her personal background and the habits she formed when she was young really informed her habits today. So I really hope that as you listen to the podcast, you have this sense of purpose to understand that anytime representation is mentioned, diversity is mentioned, inclusion is mentioned, it isn't just a buzzword. You know, it is essential to making sure we have the world that we deserve today. Hope you love the podcast. Hope you check it out. I'm going to be putting a lot of her information. She runs this amazing studio as part of Al Jazeera's uh, media platform, and you should check it out. I think they're doing pretty interesting things, and, and it's an interesting way of telling stories. So make sure you check it out. Make sure you give her a shout out, uh, and make sure you write us a review. All your reviews matter. So leave us a five-star review and let us know what you think of the podcast. All right. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Zara Rasul. She's the head of Contrast, which is part of Al Jazeera Digital. Now, what she focuses on is pretty interesting to me, and we're going to dive into that in the interview. But she focuses on the research and production of compelling 360-degree videos, and she goes into different types of immersive storytelling. And I'm so interested in hearing how she does this authentically across cultures. Welcome to the show, Zara. 
Thank you. Mateo? The pleasure is mine. So before we get into uh, who you are and, 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 um, and, and how you came to be this amazing storyteller, I want to give the audience a little glimpse of your TCK identity. And I know we talked about uh, this earlier when we had a, a pre-production call, but you know, tell us about your background. How did you, where did you grow up and how did you become so passionate about journalism and storytelling? So I actually grew up in Mumbai, in India. And uh, growing up, you know, we had a rule in our house that we had to read the newspaper every morning, my brother and I, um, regardless whether we wanted it or not. And every night at the dinner table, we had to discuss the news, what we read, what, how we felt about it. And then we watched um, the news together on TV. And I think at a really young age, uh, you know, there was this uh, this recognition that the people that I was seeing on TV, uh, the cultures that were being shown and the people that were being spoken about on the news were very close to the cultures I belonged to because I grew up at the time of the Iraq invasion, the war in Afghanistan. And so much of the news that was told was about people who were living in cultures that were similar to mine, that shared my religion, people who looked like me. Um, but, you know, what they were talking about them didn't feel like it was, I, I didn't feel like my reality at all. Um, you know, I grew up in a family with an uh, incredibly strong mother, um, really strong women all around, and, you know, never had this, the, the, the narrative on TV at that time, and even now, actually, uh, it's no different, is that Muslim women are oppressed. Uh, if you cover your head, it's because you're doing it by compulsion. Um, all of these very stereotypical views of uh, what Islam is, what a lot of uh, Eastern cultures are. And so, you know, that was how, that, that was what I saw growing up. And so I remember, you know, telling my parents that, well, this is not, this is not our life. This is so different from our life. And, you know, I felt very misrepresented. And so my dad told me, he was like, well, things won't change unless you actually become a part of the media and you work towards that change. And so I guess like from a young age, there was that interest in going into journalism and being part of the media. Yeah, it's interesting because I heard that story uh, of of the newspapers and your parents when I was watching one of your talks, and it it really reminded me of my background as well because of that's exactly what my dad uh, would do, and I've talked about that often. Where he would read the newspaper front and back, and then he would turn on the news. It would be BBC, CNN, and then the uh, local news station. And I used to ask my dad, you know, wh why he did these things, and then he would say to me, "Well, I can tell you, the world is bigger than you." And if you want to succeed in it, you have to understand it. And he, he would he would always tell me, you know, sort of similar things. And I that was in Nigeria, and I was in uh, um, in in Burkina Faso as well. But it's fascinating to me how that simple habit of understanding the idea of getting different perspectives on one narrative or one group of people can can um, can really influence people. And I, I suppose it, it plays into it plays a big role into why you're so passionate about this because the stories. That we do hear about Muslims, for example, isn't always told from um, <laughs> an accurate point of view, and it's not usually told by people who live in the culture. Absolutely, and especially not Muslim women. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about like all of the news stories you read about Muslim women. Almost all of them are fixated on the headscarf, as if that's the only dimension of Muslim women that is there to explore. Um, 
you know, and so is the media representation, whether you see in music, movies, uh, televisions, if there is any, is all that. Right, right. And yeah, I, I'm because I think we're close in age, but I, I definitely I remember I was in I was in an American international school in Burkina Faso, uh, which is a country in West Africa, when 9-11 happened. And I remember a lot of the narrative. Nigeria is a country with um, uh, nearly basically 50 50 Muslim Christian, you know, slightly more uh, Muslims than Christian. So, you, you know, as a Christian, I always grew up with, with a lot of Muslims. Um, around me, I even have some of my family where we, we just coexisted. So it was always interesting for us to see the narratives because we were like, wait, mom, dad, is this just, that, that was a question that I was asking myself. And I was like, but why is this, why is this such a, you know, a, a bad, why, why are we painting like such a horrible picture or broad strokes with that? But I remember the Islamophobia that was, that was really spiked up in that. Um, and I've listened to other comedians, even like Osama Minhaj, who was Muslim as well, Muslim, um, Indian. He talks about how that shifted, you know, uh, perspective from that. So how can we then do a better job of making sure that the subjects of our stories are the center of our, our center of the story? Yeah. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is, right, like this oversimplification of people and especially people of color, I think, is a problem um, predominantly in the West. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, are issues that that exist you know we have like there's racism in the east and you know uh, wherever you travel but like you see the the representation of uh, you know um of, of women for example i find that so much more nuanced and more powerful in like in india or when you travel around the african continent you know you see like you see women and the way their abilities and their strengths are explored and their personalities are they do a much better job uh, of that in, in our country. Yeah. yeah. And I have a theory on that. I've always said this theory. So I think a lot of, a lot of this comes from an ethnocentric point of view. I think because of the way things have been shifted, you know, a lot of the, the culture seems to be like Hollywood is here, music, the center is here. So a lot of people that live in the West feel like people are coming to us. So there's no need to understand the other element. But on the other side, there's, there's there's a pride in understanding where you're from and who you are in addition to knowing the other side so you have those multiple perspectives when you come here because first of all you really need to know who you are and you uh, you need to understand how you, you navigate different tribes or different ethnic groups but then if you want to coexist you also have to have sort of a cultural know-how of of western lingo and i think that added layer sort of plays a role into that yeah absolutely yeah yeah, and it, it, but the reason why I, I I then would would always push back on my um, my uh, colleagues here when I first came here because um they did limit me to single stories. I, I've shared a story of people singing Lion King stories to me before, or singing Lion King songs to me rather because I was from Nigeria. Is I I always wonder how to I always talk about the importance of doing the same thing that Eastern cultures do because. That's how humanization and empathy starts. But I'm curious to hear your, your point of view on how we can develop empathy and, I guess, more authentic storytelling. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that when you think about stories, right, like especially in the West, you know, and I can I can talk only to the American context, very okay. little European because I work here. Um, I, I travel and, you know, do a lot of speaking engagements in Europe, but my most of my work is primarily, I'm based here, I live here. Um, in New York. And so I think like, you know, even when we think about empathy, who are we, who are we wanting to empathize, right? Like it is the white person. 
Uh, so we find like, you know, even for somebody like me who wasn't, who wasn't born in this country, uh, moved here when I was around 18, uh, my default is speaking to the white person because that's how all our narratives are shaped. Right. And so a lot of the, and so, you know, I have to keep that in check, you know, because there are, we need to be able to tell stories that are for us also. Because to me, the most powerful thing about storytelling is to be able to reclaim your narrative and to be able to use it as a tool for healing. Um, and we can't, be, we can't do that if the, the subject for all of our stories uh, or the, the people who we are creating these stories are for white people. Yeah. Uh, and so that's something that I've, I, I you know, explore a lot in, in the work that we do. Uh, and just to t- you know a little bit little background about what I currently work on. So my job is to look at new and emerging tech and to use that for more innovative storytelling and journalism. Uh, Three sixty video is a very small part of what we do, uh, but we look at uh, the tech like VR, uh, AR, volumetric capture, artificial intelligence, all of these things, uh, and then we try to use them to craft stories. And so that's what me and my team does. That's our focus right now. And it's well, interesting, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no go, go ahead. I, I had a follow-up question, but I, I know you wanted to finish your thought. Yeah, and it's interesting because in this space, like this niche of like technology and storytelling, I think the storytelling is even more problematic because your technologists have now become the storytellers. Wow. Wow. Can you elaborate on that more? Yeah, so, you know, because it's harder to, it's, it's, more, it's more difficult to understand how these technologies work. Uh, the people who understand the tech of it end up being the ones who are in charge of the narratives and we all know who are the people that are (laughs) that's no secret um and so those are the stories that are being told constantly uh they're even more exploitative they're even more one-dimensional um they are lacking depth uh and you know they are created specifically for they're they're created for, for a very specific uh elite audience yeah, so I love what you're saying because you're saying, you know, stories are universal. They they're basically the oldest form of communication that we've had from time. But the things that have changed are the means through which stories are transmitted, whether it's video, audio, now VR, immersive technology, and all these things. But the the gatekeepers, the ones that do do a lot of the creation, that create a lot of the platforms, that own a lot of these platforms, they do generally look like you know, one group of people and. As a result of that, bias seeps in, and that plays into the type of stories that you tell. And that coupled with the fact that, to your point, a lot of the default things, the default uh, beauty standards tend to lean towards Eurocentric views. Uh, the default standard for for um, just how we view politics, uh, how we view religion, how we view beauty, the same sort of thing. And so that is going to continue to influence the next generation if we don't diversify the uh, the ecosystem yeah absolutely i mean completely and i you know i my background is in traditional journalism it's an investigative journalism i have two degrees in journalism um which i would not recommend to anybody (laughs) wait wait you you can't just say that (laughs) why why would you recommend it because i'm very curious to hear that because like you know uh it's it's funny because I grew up with Indian parents and like they didn't pass down any like math or science genes to us because they're <laughs> artists. 
Uh, and so we were like pretty unique in that case where we like weren't doing what other kids were doing around us, which I thought at that time was probably good. But then I was like, oh, I want to study journalism. Like my parents didn't tell me not to do that. <laughs> I could have like gotten a degree with more useful skills. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and so my, I started in like investigative journalism, right? And um, I, you know, gave, I then, uh, gave that up to do my own startup, which was uh, at that time, like digital platforms were emerging and, you know, my startup focused on using different digital platforms to actually uh, tell stories that are curated from around the world by people who live in those parts of the world. It's called justry, like just of the story. And I did that for a couple of years. And then, you know, while I was doing that, there was a company in LA that saw the work that I was doing and asked me to come on board to be their managing editor. And they were working with VR and it was a space that was like completely unknown to me. Um, and I thought it was interesting because I didn't know anything about it. And so I joined and kind of learned on the job, but I was so frustrated being in the industry. I worked for two years uh, in that space. And I was like, this is worse than the journalism world. Um, just cause like, it's so much more niche and the skill levels, the, the skill level is higher in this and so the people that you work with uh, are not diverse at all and the stories that are told are not diverse and I was ready to leave I was like this is not what I want to spend my life doing um, and then that's when you know this offer from Al Jazeera came where they were like well we want somebody to lead the innovation studio here would you do it and I was I guess out of my frustration I was like no I don't want to do this anyways so I'm gonna like put forth a list of demands and see if they'll actually agree with it and I told him I was like I want to hire my own team I want to have complete control over editorial you know I want to be able to uh, I want to be able to like have a training program that's part of it uh, I want to choose the location where I work out of and they agreed they agreed to all of it and so that was sort of that became the genesis of contrast to wherein our goal was yes to create these immersive experiences but it was I think the DNA of the project is how do we make sure that people who don't have access to the technologies but whose stories are being told all the time learn how to use these tech and are able to tell stories using it. Wow that's that's impressive I love I love that you demanded that and then one of the things Probably the most important thing that you demanded was you determining who made up your editorial team. So then my follow-up question to that is, what exactly is your editorial strategy? Yeah, so my, uh, you know, our editorial strategy was that it was to cover issues uh, in the developing world of people of color um, and to tell those stories by collaborating with them. Uh, and the stories had to fall within the most pressing issues of our times that young people are currently facing. Uh, so it's pretty broad, but, you know, we are, our, our audiences, the Al Jazeera audience is so wide. I mean, it's international. So we have a lot of, you know, different topics that we can focus on. Yeah. Um, but it was that it was like collaborating with people from the communities to tell their stories authentically. So collaborative storytelling mixed with investiga investigative journalism, essentially. Um. And we we do in, we do I won't say we do investigative journalism, but we we'll do journalism. We don't spend months like investigating and gotcha, issue, gotcha, know? gotcha, or like gotcha. Unearthing something that you don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I guess uh, the reason why I even brought those two things up is because I spend a lot of time uh, in media and talking to media and also being um, you know interviewing journalists. And sometimes I do hear that people feel like 
it's incompatible to be investigative and collaborative. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that's true, but I hear that a lot, especially in newsrooms. When I just get, sometimes if I'm just sitting in a newsroom and I see what they're saying, like, oh, we're competing with clickbait headlines, or we don't have enough time, or there's no way to spend to find the right source, and and the media industry, the journalism industry has moved past that, so sourcing takes too much time. And I, I was always curious about that because then I always say, then that you know, you're not telling the right story, <laughs> but then the right story doesn't sell, is what I hear. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I firmly believe that there is no alternative for collaboration and co-creation. Mm. In journalism, in storytelling, in entertainment, in anything, if you want to be able to represent people right, if you want to get the truth, if you want to, if you care about authenticity and representation, um, these are, this is what you need to do. I mean, every documentary that we've worked on, you know, we've had producers who are the same level as my producers uh, who are working on the docs. But we don't have hard, we don't have a hard time finding these people. You know, we are living, you know, we we're living in a digital age where it's really easy to find contacts anywhere in the world. Uh, it takes effort, but it's not impossible. Um, I think yeah. a lot of the times people don't do it because, you know, it requires them to spend some time reaching out to people, stepping outside the comfort zone. And it's just easy to just hire your friend who you've worked with before. Boom. There we go. And and that that's the exact point. I think that's the point of, of a lot of the things you talk about, that journalism, storytelling and, uh, you know, what you do with your platform, whether it's with documentaries or, or videos, is you need to put the effort to know the people you tell the story about. Otherwise, you do promote disinformation and you actually do something that's more harmful, uh, you know, when you choose comfort over um, competence, essentially. <laughs> so, and, you know, and we, like, we've been hearing this for a while now. There's a lack of trust in the media by younger, by young people. Uh, younger generations don't trust them as much. And there are, there are multiple factors for that, right? But like one of the main factors is that the younger generations have intersectional identities. They, they, uh, they relate to different, you know, they relate to different identities and we are not doing a good job of actually representing them at all. Yeah. Uh, people of color don't trust mainstream news organizations because they felt, they, they feel like they're constantly um, being, um, you know, betrayed by the way they're portrayed. They are not being listened to or heard or being having a conversation with. And this is not a new problem. This is a problem that has existed since the start. But yeah. you know, what's frustrating is that we're in 20, we're in 2019 and we're still facing that issue. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also think, you know, um, this is someone that loves media here, but I also think that there is if we look at the news today, I don't know what type of CNN you used to watch in India, but the type of CNN I used to watch in, in Nigeria, it seems very different than the CNN I see now. Because a lot of times what I see is like this, you know, you have like this four squares and it's the, the loudest person and it's like all these panels and people just debating something that I feel like is not actually covering the news and the loudest voice usually wins. And then the, the, there's a clip of that that goes viral and that becomes the news. And it's not even just, you know, I'm just using seeing as an example. It's on yeah. all sides. And then it becomes um, this talking head thing. And you don't actually get subject matter experts to, to educate people on the stories. And I don't know if it's a shift to try and get clicks and more profit, but 
that also plays a role, I believe, in distrust because when you start to see a pattern and you know what's the most viral video, oh, that person got uh, got taken down by such and such, that takes away from the whole point um, of what news is or even the type of, of stories that you like to cover. This is just my yeah. opinion, but I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. To be honest, like I don't watch cable news TVs unless I'm working out in the gym and there are like big screens in front and they're playing there. <laughs> But you see, but you, but that's the thing. You're, you're even proving the point that that's the thing. It, we've now become so desensitized to something that should be important to inform us, and you know, and it's now like, uh, you know, this is just another one of those things. Um, and and I think I think that, that I think um, I, I really want to hold platforms more responsible for that. So I'm glad that you're doing that. Um, talk to me about the storytelling that you uh, give me examples of storytelling that you've uh, stories rather that you've covered. Because I know that you've gone around the world to host screenings and you've told several types of stories, but I want to get into what exactly you you showcase and highlight. Sure. So like I was saying, our, you know, our editorial um, mandate is the kind of stories that we cover editorially are issues that are relevant to young people um, yeah. in, in developing countries and in communities of color around the world. And so one of the, I'll give you an example of a, of a uh, documentary we did and then speak about something that we're currently working on. Uh, one sure. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It was uh, a story about... Uh... Uh, oil spill in Port Harcourt in Niger in the Niger Delta in Nigeria. Oh, Zara, you know the, what are you doing to me? You just, you just yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why you said example. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, and so we did. And so the you know our co-producer. So we went to we went to Port Harcourt to film the piece. Um, but our entire strategy, and this is sort of how we model the the collaboration and the co-creation part of it, right? Is our co-producer on the piece uh, is a Nigerian a Nigerian American. Um, writer, um, and then our music compo- our music composer is also Nigerian. We worked with, you know, of course, an all Nigerian crew on the ground to tell the story. The story is told from the perspective of uh, a girl called Lessie who was working in her community who was displaced because of the oil spill, and so she takes us back to her village to show us how um, her her village was destroyed because of the oil spill, and we do that using. Uh, live action footage on one side of the screen on 180 degrees and on the other 180 degrees we recreate through animations what she remember her village being wow um so in a 360 space you have like one of what it currently looks like what her what the ground looks like what the soil looks like what the water looks like um and then on the other 180 
you see through animations what it used to look like based on her memories. And so, you know, that's the story that we followed. And then, our, like, as I was mentioning, the co-producer is Nigerian. The person who did the musical score is Nigerian. We worked with a lot of other Nigerian talent to tell the story. After the, the documentary was, was done and screened at festivals, we partnered with Samsung uh, and with a local Nigerian creative agency called um, a white space creative agency in Lagos to actually put, do a pop-up uh, so that people could actually watch it in the headset. So it was not just us creating the documentary and then submitting festivals, but we wanted for people there to be able to experience it as it is meant to be experienced in a headset. Um, so that is one example of a documentary we do and almost all of our original productions follow this format. Uh, something that we're currently working on right now, we're working on an installation piece uh, uh, around incarceration, gentrification, and using themes of Afrofuturism. And it's an interactive VR piece that tells the story of incarceration. It's an audio and augmented reality piece that tells the story of gentrification. And both of these experiences live in an installation that's designed by artists. Uh, imagining what Harlem, because the story is based in Harlem, would look like had the people there not faced the injustices that they did. So uh, that's, those are kind of the projects they're working on with the Harlem piece. Like from the get-go, you know, my goal was uh, I wanted all the creative people on the on the piece to be people from New York City who identified as Black because there is a huge disparity between people who are able to work in these fields um, because of lack of access to the technology and skill level. And it's usually people of color and, and you know, at the lowest rung of the ladder are Black people. Um, and so it's really hard to find that talent at that level. And... I, you know, one of the things is that you won't have that talent unless you don't invest in them, unless you don't educate them, unless you don't give them opportunities. And so one of the, you know, goals of this project is that how do we make sure that we are also, while creating these experiences authentically, make sure that people who don't get the opportunities are getting the opportunities to do the creative work. Okay, so so I have so many questions. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> First thing that is pretty selfish, I'll get it out of the way. You mentioned my uh, my hometown, Lagos. What was it like for you oh, to I visit? Love and, uh, I love Lagos. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you hear that, everybody. You hear that? Okay, it's all good. All right, now back back to no, back truly, to truly. I mean, the art scene in that city. Oh man, it's nothing like I've ever seen anywhere else. Exactly. That's what I try to tell these people. I try to tell them all the time. Because, <laughs> but uh, check out Lagos. I'm, I'm not getting paid, but just go to Lagos for your next vacation. I promise you. See, Zara improves of it. I know you will too. But uh, you brought up a few terms there that I understand, but I'm sure the audience might have some questions. So you said augmented reality, uh, immersive technology, and the 360. Can you ex explain what they are and how much depth they add to your documentary storytelling? Because I think that uh, that's impressive, but I, I just want the audience to be able to feel why that added layer or those added layers rather, really bring the story to a heightened level? Sure. So these are all different tools. These are like the, the technologies to me are tools for us to use to tell stories mm -hmm. in different ways. So with virtual reality, with the interactive VR piece, for example, when you put on the headset, um, you know, the story is shot primarily in a brownstone in Harlem. And mm -hmm. so when you put on the headset, you can actually, you will like, we've used something called volumetric capture which means that you take thousands of photographs of a place and then you put them together in a way that 
that entire space is recreated in the headset. So you'd actually feel like you're in that location. And you can also move around and you can touch things and you can interact with them. So that's what volumetric capture allows you to do. Um, and then with the interactive VR part, so when you're putting your, put, you put on the headset, you actually feel like you're inside that brownstone. You can walk around in that brownstone. Um, you can, the way the story is designed currently is that you can touch different objects and then the objects will actually trigger video stories that wow. will, that are part of the, the narrative of the piece. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you need me to simplify that even more, let me know because I'm so used to talking about it. Sometimes I forget that. I don't understand. <laughs> no, uh, that's, always, that's always asking the question. So for the, for the listeners, you can basically feel a lot of the things that are going on um, throughout the story. So if you if you see something or something said in the story, you can hear what that sounds like and feel what that sounds like. And that's yeah. what technology does. You can't does. feel as in like, you can't feel like touch. Yeah, um, not, yeah, can do it. Like, I mean, you can, that's possible. We've not done that in this piece, but like, yeah. you know, you can hold something, you can pick something up. Yeah. Things yeah. like that. That's the interactivity part of it. Uh, you I, can open a door, you know. Wow. Well, have you seen, so have you, have you, have you gotten feedback from people that have participated in observing this and have they told you what that was like for them? So actually, we just finished filming the uh, the interactive VR piece, so it's still with the developers in uh, in post. Yeah. Uh, we're hoping it will be done. You know, these things take a long time to develop. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. No, I was just curious about that because I, I know sometimes uh, I always hear VR, AR, but sometimes I was like, well, I don't know if everybody knows what those things are. I just know that, <laughs> that that's the that's the term. But it, it's uh, thank you for explaining that for us here. Uh, and especially with the camera work, I can imagine yeah. that there's an intentionality with the angles and all that. Yeah. And also with AR, just to, you know, just to define AR a little bit is, you know, when you have with AR, you can augment your reality. That's basically what it is. So, you know, if you have a surface, you can have something appear on the surface. Uh, if you have a building and you want to show what it looked like, you know, 30 years back, you can sort of add those layers using animations or illustrations or cgi uh, to overlay on that and you can have augmented reality you can view it through a headset that would reveal itself in the form of a hologram uh, or it can be through your phone which is a window to like you know seeing something on it yeah yeah that's so cool that's so cool for 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 those listening before i ask uh, my next question how can they work with your team or what's the process for pitching stories to you or is there a process at all yeah i mean there definitely is one on our website we have our contact page and people can just write to us in the partner with us section okay okay i'll put that in the show notes i'll put that in the show notes now the last question i had here before i dive into uh uh things on the personal end is more about the fact that what i heard was intentionality you told me about the Nigerian story with Port Harcourt, the the oil spill, and then you know the the Lagos and the use of the Nigerian artists for score for you know for several aspects of of the production, and that strikes me as something that is simple, but not easily implemented in many newsrooms today. And so, I, I love that you you've created a platform and you've shown that you have to be intentional about the storytelling, but how do we get that to a mainstream level? You know, I think it really just depends on personal, on, you know, 
editors, people working on their projects, I think we got to do the work to reach out to people. Uh, you know, for right. example, on the, the, the Nigerian documentary, like, you know, there are tons of people in my roster of, of musicians who I could use through the school. But why would I when there are so many talented Nigerian composers that I could find? And yeah. it wasn't really it wasn't really that hard to um, to find people. You you know you you how talented the people are there. So I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just about reaching out to them and you know um, spending some time to 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 get them to understand your workflow and have some patience in educating them the way you need the work to be done. Exactly. But, Sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's the point that I've always had people argue with me on. It's like, why should I spend this much time educating someone in my process when I could already do that? But I'll tell you why. Because the product, the end product, is so much better than you can imagine. Uh, you know, yeah. it not just looks right, it feels right, it sounds right. You know, there are just so many more layers of depth into you that are added to your story when you do that. Also, the other thing is that, you know, uh, when we're doing this, when we do stories like that, uh, we start building a community that we wouldn't have otherwise. So then the people that we work with will tell other people in their community, you should check out their work. You know, they actually they actually uh, cared about what we said and, you know, wanted to collaborate with us. Like suddenly they start trusting us. We would not have been able to build that trust had we, had we actually not done that. Exactly. Boom. There you go. And I'm so glad you said that because that's always what, um, you know, I, I always have conversations with and I say the same thing you say, that you, especially because I do a lot of diversity and inclusion in companies. And that's my number one role. It's when we talk about pipeline strategies or how to find people of, of color or people in marginalized communities, it's always uh, like it's going to spend too much time to just educate and, and invest in all these. And I'm, and I'm always saying you've got to think about the long term and the, the community aspect of this, because if you can't replicate the environment that you live, live around, you're just going to create this further divide and it's yeah. going to ultimately hurt you in the long run, but it's still, you're just actually, there's, there's a responsibility that you're dropping the ball on. And yeah. so, yeah. And you know what I hear very often is that, oh, it's so hard for us to attract people of color to work with us. Yep. I hear that too. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And I was like, yeah, you do because you only want them as a representation, you don't actually want their voice, which is something that I see happen all the time around me. It just happened to me a lot of the times. You know, people look at me and they're like, oh, she checks so many boxes. Well, let's bring her on. <laughs> but they don't actually care about what my perspective is, uh, yeah. you know, the way I look at the world, about my experiences. Those are not integral to them, uh, important to them. Yeah. And so you treat people, when you treat especially people of color like that, women, women of color like that, uh, people don't trust you anymore and they don't want to work with you. So if you're having a hard time recruiting or attracting people of color, then you got to really look deep into your practices. 100% well said. And it, it, you, you brought it up many times. The stories that are being told are, uh, about Muslim women, for example, are almost virtually always false. The stories being told about people in developing countries are always very, very false. You and I come from countries that have been lambasted in the media and told through singular narratives and, and you know, almost, um, you know, caricatures of, 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 our, of, our, of our culture. And, and India is so diverse in religion and ethnic groups and, and, and just e economics. Same thing with Nigeria, that it is 
actually a crime that you can't really arrest people for. I'm just going to say crime. <laughs> it's a crime to actually just limit people to singular stories. It's, it's irresponsible. Yeah, and, and also, you know, the other thing that I truly do believe in is that, you know, in order to make play, you, in order to make space for other voices, sometimes we got to give up our own voice. Yeah. If you space, if you want, you want to uh, make place at the table, you want somebody else to have power, that means you've got to share your power. Yes. Uh, you can't, you know, you can't have it, you can't have it your way all the time. And that's the same thing with the storytelling that I say, right? Like there might be a story that I'm, like I'm really, really interested in doing, but I can see that there's somebody else who has a much more has a much more powerful voice than mine, who has much more knowledge and information and depth than I do about that subject. So then my goal becomes to step aside and support that person to be able to tell that story. Yeah. Because that person's gonna do a much better job than I'm gonna do with regards to that. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I don't always have to be the director and the producer. Sometimes I can just help somebody be that. Yeah. And it, it, it always it always pays off in the end because sometimes, unfortunately, I do see a lot of the crabs in the barrel in their um, mentality where if it's if, if I'm here, I'm just there's no other option. And so to your point of sharing, that power needs to be to be given. But in addition to that, what I'll add is there needs to be a bigger picture thinking. Uh, I think sometimes when we approach narratives or storytelling or even diversity and inclusion, we think about it through a very short-sighted view. And I'm like, you've got to look at the, the long-term effects of what this is going to be. Um, and, and that, in addition to sharing power, uh, will lead to just what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All, right. All right, we're getting ready to wrap up here, but I, I wanted to, uh, to close with some, uh, some of the, the personal questions about your identity. I know you talked about earlier, uh, you know, people trying to poach you for their companies because of you checking all the boxes. But... How do you, Zara, define yourself? You know, you're someone that has grown up now in multiple cultures. So what would you say your identity is? And that's a hard question. Uh, you you know, if you ask me where's home, I will in, automatically say India because that is home. That's where I was born and raised. But that doesn't always feel the case when I'm there. I think in my mind it is more so than it is in the yeah. world. Yeah. It's so many places around the world. Um, and so my identity truly is, I guess, I mean, of course, I identify as a brown Muslim woman of color um, who grew up in India, but um, whether am I American, am I Indian, am, am I something else? I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. I guess, you know, where I find people who I can share similar values with, who feel similarly about um, the work that we're doing is actually just like finding the community, wherever you find a community that you fit in, that sort of becomes home then. No, I'm glad you said that. And that's why, that's really why I brought this up because I wanted you, I wanted to highlight to, to everyone listening, uh, people that are potentially dealing with the same thing is that many times we've lived in a world that tries to label us before we even label ourselves. And sometimes we will much more then one thing, right? You know, you said brown Muslim woman of color, who's also uh, someone that I, that identifies with sometimes not feeling Indian enough, or sometimes not feeling American enough, but also in America and in New York, where there's diversity and inclusion. And there are other aspects of your identity that you, you probably are yet to even discover. But when we do commit to authentic storytelling, which is what you do, you leave the door open for full expression 
of self. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. Yeah, you said that really well. Ah, oh, I was just, I was just I was picking up what you were giving me. This is this is yeah. off you. <laughs> one of the, the things that I ch- I I feel like is the, one of the biggest challenges is like people always want to put you in a box, and I was like, but it's like I literally fit in no box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What exactly? What if you don't fit? And then when you don't fit in the box, you then create your own box, and it's okay to have your own box. But we don't have um, uh, you. Well, you're fixing that now, and and uh, I'm well, I'm encouraging others to do me included, and everyone to continue to tell more different types of stories so that we can sort of create the spaces for everybody to have their own boxes and for us to understand that you know the world isn't just told through one lens um, and I, I I firmly believe that that's part of the the reason why we are this uh, divisive time now whether it's with the politics or with media or any of these things I think it's no coincidence that a lot of what we've laid foundation on the foundation on which stories play a role into how we see people which play a role into how policies are formed and then it becomes all these, you know, um, weaponized forms of divisions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Uh, where's, where's Zara's favorite place in the world to travel to? Um, my favorite place that I've been to recently was Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Okay. East Africa. Uh, why? What about Ethiopia? I mean, it's just, you have to go there, man. It's magical. Uh, Okay. Uh, Okay. are amazing the food's so good uh i really like spicy food and you know they have some incredible food there uh it was interesting to me like you know i had heard about ethiopia in the context that it was the only country that hadn't been colonized and i didn't yeah. know what that, that that felt like to be in a place like that because i've lived in a country that comes from a, a very heavy colonial past and most of the places you know in the developing world i've traveled to have had some of that and it was really different. The experience was different. Um, and I really enjoyed that. All right. Shout out to Ethiopia. Uh, what about best favorite food for you? Favorite food? Yeah. I have to stand up for Indian food. Indian food. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't cook at all. So it's not like I eat it very often. But when I do, I really enjoy it. Okay. Well, then we're going to stay with India here. The What is the difference between... Um, uh, Mumbai and New Delhi. Um, I haven't ever lived in Delhi, but being from Mumbai, I've only visited, but being from Mumbai, I, I mean, I just have to say that Mumbai is a much, much better city. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. People are much cooler. Uh, it has, it's more fun. I think the food's better. I know a lot of people would disagree with that, but we're like the fashion capital and the entertainment capital of India. Oh, so, so Mumbai is, is actually the entertainment capital? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 oh. it is. Oh. So the only, the only thing Delhi has is politics, which nobody has ever wanted, so. <laughs> okay, look at you. Okay, well, uh, well, there you go. If you want to go to, to India, make sure you, you first of all check out Mumbai. Um, and then you go to Lagos, then you come back to, to New Delhi. So the funny thing is that when I went to Lagos, it was like so similar to Mumbai, and I was like, Man, this feels like home. I could totally live here. I, I you know what? I, I say this all the time to my Indian friends. I feel like there's such a kinship with our cultures, just because uh, over 200. I mean, I think India has even more. We have over 250 ethnic groups and several different religions. And um, like, I think India, you know, like Lagos to me sounds like Mumbai. I will. It's like a loose version of New York, and then all these type of things. And I'm like, there, all the chaos, the 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 yeah. traffic the different languages spoken, 
just the, the horrible driving. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, people thought I was like, you know, I was Nigerian. I was like maybe like biracial, but like they were convinced I was half African. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, They'll call you half caste there. They'll say yeah. you're half caste. Yeah. I also wear the head wrap, and I and you know I wear the head wrap, uh, you know, in a different way. So they like it, it felt so welcoming too. It was like you know the assumption was that you belong rather than when you travel in Europe uh, or even here. The assumption is that you are an outsider. Right. You don't, unless like you've proved yourself that you belong. Ah, gosh, so, this is this is amazing. I mean, I you know when when I asked Zara to come on the podcast, I didn't realize that this would be a, a PSA for. Uh, Nigeria, but now do you know that Nigeria is, is an amazing place to get to go to? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Zara. So thank you for that. Of course, no problem. Thank you for having Kayo <laughs> on your show. This <laughs> conversation. No, nah, the pleasure is mine. But before we go, the last question I always ask my uh, my guest is this: It's my mission statement. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So how do you, Zara, use your difference to make a difference? You know, I'm unapologetically different. And I'm not afraid to show that uh, even when I'm, you know, in professional settings, because I think a lot of people are feel the constant pressure to fit inside a box uh, or to conform to certain standards, especially women. And, yeah. you know, I think I did that a lot in my career, too. And now I've just stopped doing that. It was like, you got to take me as who I am as a whole person with my values and my ideals. Uh, because unless you don't do that, people don't realize there are people like that who exist. Huh. Well, I mean, that's, that's amazing. So everyone, please check out Contrast. Contrast is an amazing platform. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. And if you want to partner up with them, they have a partner with us section that would also be in the uh, you know essential uh, notes of the, the podcast. But as a reminder, Contrast is you know, as part of their immersive, Al Jazeera's immersive storytelling studio. And they explore underreported, diverse stories from and about marginalized communities and developing countries. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Zara. Thanks a lot, Tayo. Right. Pleasure is mine. Till next time, ladies and gentlemen, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.